season two, episode 18 of our podcast series. The podcast that inspires and educates through the sharing of real life experiences. With me today is Chris Delani. Chris is an interview coach and author of What is Your Interview Identity? Today, he'll be sharing with us personal stories of life with dyslexia and terrible lists. Chris says, passion and luck often create success and I totally agree. Hello, Chris, and welcome to Hello, Podcast Thank you for having me down. I'm really excited to be here and to share my story. Great. It's a pleasure to have you. So um, what will your favorite quote be? Do you have any favorite quotes that you would like to share with us? Yes. If you don't succeed, try and try again. Oh, that's an old quote, but it's one of the best ones out there because we always fail. We always make mistakes. We always have errors in our lives. You got to keep going, don't you? Keep going, keep go, living your life, keep taking new actions, and then you'll achieve in the end. Great, great. Let's get to know a little bit more about you, about your background and how life was like growing up. Yep. So um, I'm a stupid dyslexic person. That's how I view myself when I was a child. I thought I am a stupid person. So I grew up uh, being dyslexic and I had uh, a terrible list. So what that meant was I couldn't read, I couldn't write and I couldn't talk properly, which is really funny now because I'm an author and I speak for a living as well. I'm a hypnotherapist. You have to talk with great diction as a hypnotherapist as well. But when I left school, I ended up in like what I thought were dead end jobs. My first job, by the way, I got paid one pound an hour. That's what I got paid one pound an hour. This is before minimum wage. And so I left school, I was dyslexic, I got this one pound an hour job and I was just working in, you know, low skill positions. And I thought my life is going to go nowhere. But inside, I had this passion, I had this passion to help people, I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And I thought, because I'm not academic, I can't get paid doing this passion. So I'll volunteer. So I used to volunteer with scout groups and youth groups and take disabled adults on hiking trips and rock climbing. And when I was doing this stuff, I realized that I had this natural ability to have empathy with people, to communicate with people, to uh, just be like that person who can be there for them. And I thought, God, you know, I need to, I need to get better at this. And it was at that moment when I thought I need to start learning how to read and how to write a little bit better. So I did like literacy and numeracy courses. And that got me into like lead, reading books about self-help and motivation and confidence. And I learned all these techniques that I was sharing with all these young people and these disabled adults that I was supporting. Anyway, going back into my career, I was on a little bit more than a pound an hour. And I was probably on like one pound 10, I just can't remember, but I was on a little <laughs> bit more. Okay. Uh, and I was working in this warehouse uh, and got an opportunity to do a thoughtless truck driving course. And I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. I can learn how to drive one of these big machines and maybe that this will be something I'll enjoy in my working life. So I went on a course and a couple of my colleagues was on the course and I was great at it. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I learn by doing, and that's what this course was. Got on the truck, I was driving it through the chicane, lifted up the pallets, put it around the warehouse. I was the king of the thoughtless truck. But some of my colleagues was really nervous about driving this big machine. And when they got on it, they was crashing into the chicane. They nearly drove all the, the instructor. And the instructor said to him, you're going to fail the course. And he was really upset. So I went over to him and I did this visualization technique that I used to use with the disabled adults to make them confident when doing like big rock climbs. A dead simple technique. Anyway, they got on the truck, confident as anything, drove around, lifted up the pallet, put it down and passed the test. A year later, the guy who did my thoughtless truck course came to see me at my workplace and he's like, do you remember who I am? I was like, yeah, of course, you're the guy who taught me to drive the thoughtless truck. He went, no, I'm the managing director of the organization. 
The only reason I came down that weekend is because the driving instructor, it was off ill and we thought, I best come down and fulfill the contract. And I always remember you doing the magic whisper. He used to call me the magic whisper. He said, I remember you going over to the nervous uh, colleagues, whispering something to him, and then they got on a truck and they could drive it perfectly. We always talk about you in our team meetings. We have a team meeting every month and we're always talking about you. Anyway, our company is growing and we want to offer you a job in our role, in a position in our organization. Wow. I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. It went to Fortless Truck Instructor Courses, £3,000. I was like, oh, this is one of those con things, isn't it? Like, remember, there's no minimum wage at that time. I'm on yeah. like £2 an hour or something. I didn't have £30 in my back. I was eating beans and toast from my tea. I couldn't afford anything. And I thought it was a con. And he could see it on my face. He went, no, no, no. We're going to pay for your Fortless Trucking course. We're going to give you a job. We're going to give you £17,000 a year. And we're going to mentor you. We're going to support you. We can see potential in you. So I've got this amazing opportunity. Yeah. And when I reflect on that as well, I think the two things that make me successful is, one, passion. I was really passionate about people and helping people in their lives. And that made me want to advance my own dedication to like education. It, it made me like volunteer more. It made me like read books about helping people. And then look, you need passion and look in your life to make success. Great, great. Um, I've written a few questions here. So uh, why did you have to leave school? Were you being bullied? Were you being teased for what was going on? What what made you have to drop out of school that early? What was so it? I didn't yeah, so I didn't drop out of school early. I just didn't go into further education. So I did sure. my high school. Uh, you know, I have a bit of a list. People like jolt about it. And I remember like getting support at school for being dyslexic and they gave me like a dictaphone. And I thought that all that is as a dictaphone for, a, you know, a child going up in this, you know, quite a rough school is it's a spotlight about my disability because no one really yeah. knew what dyslexia was yeah. at the time. And yeah. they kind of said, oh, just record lessons instead of having to write things down. And I thought, oh no, people are going to see that. And, and, you know, I probably would get bullied. So I kind of avoided that. And instead I just struggled at school uh, which was my own fault, really. Maybe I should have took on that equipment or got some better advice. But I left school and my friends was like thinking about further education or getting better paid jobs. But I just didn't believe because I couldn't read and write that well that I'd ever be successful. And that's why I went into working in, you know, manual labor, low skilled jobs. Great. Um, you know, um, this thing you mentioned about dyslexia, I was reading about it um, just before the interview started. And it's um, so being dyslexic is like you can't read words, some you can't read properly. It doesn't mean you're not intelligent from what I read. You are still intelligent, but you may not be able to read properly. You may be reading undertone. You may not pronounce some of the words with confidence. So it's just got to do with reading and with maths, sometimes trying to put your numbers together. If I understand, I'm just trying to bring out some of the signs so that our listeners will understand what it is because they may have heard the word, they don't know exactly what it means. So I just want them to understand. And then you talked about lisp. And from what I read on the internet, lisp is when you're talking and you have your S and your Zs at the end of your words, is it? But has your, are you still dyslexic or is gone? Because yeah. I read that at four years, it's, you start dropping like you get better. Or it, solves, yeah. it gets better on its own. Are you still dyslexic or you're not anymore? Yeah, so there's basically like a scale of dyslexia. So some people are dyslexic when they're young, like you said, they kind of naturally grow out of it. The brain is, you know, it's always growing and, and evolving into it, when you, especially when you're a, a young child. 
So okay. some people grow out of it and other people have it for life. Oh, uh, like yeah. I'm dyslexic and I've got a friend who's got dyslexia at a more severe level as well. So he struggles uh, a oh. lot more than I do uh, as, as an adult. Okay. I remember realizing that I couldn't spell well. Uh, that, and this is when I started getting diagnosed with being dyslexic is when I was in primary school and my friend, my best friend in school was called Luke and I had to write his name on a piece of card. And instead of spelling it um, L-U-C-K, I spell it L-O-O-K. And I, couldn't, I could never figure out that you could spell the same word in two different ways. But the best way to describe dyslexia is when you see a word, you see the seven letters in that word. When I see a word, I see the beginning of that word, the middle of that, uh, the end of that word. But the middle letters are sometimes mixed up in the wrong order. Oh so when I see it that way, I can't always read it and pronounce it. So I learned techniques like one of the most misspelt words in the world is separate. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the reason it's misspelled is because the, the four middle letters, P-A-R-A, is either spelled P-A-R-A or people spell it P-A-R-E. Yeah. So the way I remember how to spell it is I imagine jumping out of a plane with a parachute on going Aah! all the way down to the ground. I'm pulling my parachute okay. because uh, power is parachute. So remember it's okay. spelled S-E-P-A-R-A for power, parachute, T-E. Okay. So I use visualization techniques great. to help me spell really tricky great. words. Great, great, great. This story is really, really impressive because you had gone from not being able to read and all of that to right now mentoring people. Is it? So you coach people. Your day is that your day job, or there's something else you do on the side, or your day job is to coach people who are going for interviews to be great at it. Is that a day job now? Yeah, so everything I do is about helping people. So I do interview coaching, uh, people with like anxiety and fears, I use hypnotherapy to support them and I manage like career projects. So everything I do is helping people in their life and in their career, but I specialize in uh, job interview coaching. Great. I think it's a, it's a good thing we have you here. So anybody who is looking at going to an interview anytime soon, we may be able to answer some of the questions. How should somebody present themselves for an interview? Physical appearance in your in in your case in your in your view it's such a good question that because the first problem with job interviews is unconscious bias when the interviewer walks downstairs to see you and to meet you and to greet you the first thing they do at the subconscious level is make an opinion about you i like you or i dislike you and that can be based on a number of different factors your gender your ethnicity your age even the clothes you wear your handshake or your tonality of your voice a million different things can make this snap stereotypical judgment about that person. In actual fact, that uh, unconscious bias can happen before the job interview. Just imagine you're going for an internal promotion and you're talking to a fellow manager and you say, oh, I'm going to be interviewing David or Michelle in a couple of days. And they're like, oh, well, they, I, I wouldn't thought they would be suitable for that position. That negative opinion can then create the horns effect. So I got a negative feeling about you before I actually meet you. Yeah. Or the opposite could happen. Maybe the employer goes on your social media account and can see like loads of information about the sector, shows you like your level of experience, your knowledge, you're always talking about industry related stuff. So they go, oh, wow, this person seems to know what they're talking about. So now I had the halo effect. It's basically a filter that all your interview answers will come through. So I like you or I don't, don't like you creates the initial filter, but that can be changed in the job interview. So in essence, we should be very careful of the things we put out there on social media, especially when we are looking at going for any job interview, because they could be visiting our profiles or our pages to see, to get to know us even before we come there, isn't it? 
Yeah, wow. definitely. A lot of employers are doing that now. Not all of them do that, but a lot of employers do that. And I remember, um, I think it was about six or seven years ago now, the UK police force created like a youth ambassador scheme. And this uh, this young lady was successful in that scheme. And it was all in the press. It was like a real big thing. And uh, one newspaper went through her media account and something like five or six years before this, when she would have been like 12 or 13, she wrote some negative thing on Twitter. Uh, and I don't know if that was just like, you know, uh, an unconscious thing yeah. or it was took, take, take, taken the wrong way or she was like a negative person. But this came out and then the police force, because it was like, you know, worldwide media had to let her go because of something she did when she was 12 years old on her social media account. Wow. There's this common question um, interviewers no normally ask, tell us about yourself. And sometimes you don't know where to start from, you know. That is Yes, that is the best question, though, to be asked. That is the best question, because you have this unconscious bias that creates likability or a, a dislike you. Mm -hmm. But in the interview, it's a logical process. If you can meet the criteria in the job interview scorecard and you've got those skills, qualities and experiences, the interview is going to want to hire you. So it's a logical process, but we're lazy. We have a lazy mind and we don't want to analyze every single answer uh, throughout a, a whole day of interviewing. So if you can answer that first question really good, that's where you create your interview identity, your level of perceived knowledge and experience versus your level of confidence. It creates one of 16 identities. So as an example, when people say, tell me a little bit about yourself, people sort of go, well, hi, I'm Chris. I like hiking. I and this to talk about the hobbies or what they did last weekend. Or mm -hmm. they don't really reference the job criteria. What you should do is use this interview formula Duration of experience versus qualification versus unique selling point. So as an example, you might say something like, hi, my name's Sheila. I have 10 years experience working as a podcast host. My biggest qualification is a qualification in this thing. And my three key skills are, and then talk about your three key skills relevant to that job role. So experience versus qualification versus your unique selling point is a strong opening answer where they go, wow, this person is suitable for that role. I now want to listen to their answers. Wow. How have you learned this? Did you teach yourself? Did you read books? What did you do to, how, how have you learned all of these? So COVID has been my friend. So obviously COVID has been horrible for the last, uh, you know, 12 or 18 months. And it's been, you know, a horrible time. But for me, I always talk about the passion and, and look and, you know, I'm passionate about helping people. I'm passionate about job interviews. And I found COVID when I looked at it as a negative uh, initial experience. I thought, but this is an opportunity now. You know, I can't go out the house, we're in lockdown. So I started doing loads of research and reading academic research papers on job interviews. But all the research papers are designed for employers looking at how to best recruit the best person for that job role. So I've read like 100 academic research papers from across the world, by the way. And I found that um, the, the things that make a good job interview outcome or makes a good job interviewee are the same across the world. So I flipped the research to make it uh, appliant for the applicant. So what, makes, what, what can the applicant learn to have a successful job interview? What is it they need to be doing in that job interview uh, to, be, you know, to be offered more job roles? And there's three key rules for a successful job interview. One, understand the job criteria. So that means you know the job role, you know the company culture, you know the values of the organization. This way, all your answers are going to hit the point. So number one, know the job criteria. Number two, be a self-promoter. 
in England, we're so reserved, aren't we? We hate to say how great we are. We hate to say how wonderful we've done. We hate to talk about our successes. I am telling you now, in the job interview, in that 45-minute period, you need to be talking about you as the best person, the best fit for the organization. Give best the answers, not just business as usual examples. Talk about when you've really made a difference, when you've really succeeded. And the final one is communicate with confidence. The way you say your interview answers is just as important as what you say in that job interview. So you've got to be confident. You've got to be charismatic. You've got to be changing your tonality. You've got to be using different language and giving long descriptive answers. So identify the job criteria, be a self-promoter and communicate with confidence. So many questions are in my mind. I don't know which one to come out with. How, <laughs> how can somebody communicate with confidence? You know one thing, you know, sometimes... I remember back home when I was in Ghana, I went to this job interview with a panel of nine and wow. they were all top managers, you know, the HR, all the top managers were on that position. And sometimes when you enter that, the interview room, you, you're just scared, your nerves kicking, you know, what is the best thing to do? Because when you see all these people, it's the way they look at you. I think they're expecting, they're expecting something from you. So they, they make sure their eyes are on you just to see the way you react. How can somebody present themselves com confidently in, in a room like that? How? So Tony Robbins says that uh, repetition is the mastery of any skill. So the more you do something, the more confident you become at it. So yeah. as an example, what you can do is go to improv classes because in an improv class to put you on stage to give you a banana as an example and say right pretend you're robbing a bank and you have to then just act that scene out or if you go to public speaking classes you get to speak to uh, groups of 30 or 40 people okay. delivering a prepared speech or getting uh you know getting a job coach and doing mock interviews practicing speaking even though it's a basic level skill um uh, is one thing to increase your confidence but i've got a better technique for you sheila yeah. let me try this on you now Sheila, have you got anything that makes you scared, anxious, or nervous? <laughs> On the top of my mind. I don't think I don't think so. Well, so oh, that's cool. So yeah, so you're quite confident in all situations. You're not scared of spiders, you're not, you know, you're not no. scared of heights or anything. No, no, no. Okay. Heights. Well, what I'll probably do heights. Probably heights. You got me there. Probably. Heights. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So we'll go with this. Because you kind of you seem quite quite confident, you're not really scared of anything. It won't work that well with you. But when the audience listen to this, so anyone listening to this now, um, in, what I want you to do is imagine something you're scared of. So that could be the job interview, public speaking, or you know spiders or planes or something like that. Mm. So Sheila, if you imagine heights and being at a height, so imagine a height that makes you really really scared. So can you can you picture that in your mind? Yeah. Yeah, and on a scale of one to ten, with ten being you're really scared and one being it doesn't bother you, how are you on that scale? Mm, really scared. Yep. Yeah, so is that like a seven, eight, nine, ten? I'll go for a nine. A nine. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So I want you to get that thought of being on the high or people listening to this, being in the job interview or spiders or whatever it is. I want you to imagine you can push that thought out of your mind so you can see it in front of you. You can see the borders of that thought in front of you. And for most people, when they're really scared of something, that image in their mind, that thought process is like a movie. So it's not a picture, it's a movie where people are moving around and often they're in that film. So Sheila, I want you to pause that so you've got a still picture in front of you where you can see the, uh, the edges of that photo. Can you do that? And if it's coloured, I want you to drain it black and white. And the final thing I want you to do, 
with that black and white still picture, it's put a big old frame around it. So when you go to an old art gallery, you see like big thick frames, iron and wooden. So put your still black and white picture in a frame. Have you done that? Yeah. We're not finished yet, but just on a scale of one to 10 now, where are you on that scale? Seven. Perfect. So imagine I can reach in now, I can reach into your thought process. I'm going to grab hold of that still picture. I'm going to pull it further away. So further and further away. So the picture becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's the size of a postcard. I'm going to pull it further and further away, further and further. So it's the size of a stamp. And how does it feel when it's the size of a stamp? Like I can, I can do it. Yeah. Why is it getting that's it. And let it go all the way then. So it's a dot on the horizon and then let it just go. And then just take a deep breath. That's it. And how do you feel now? I feel confident. I feel that I'll be able to jump. Yes, so perfect. So this is, so let me explain this take again. So get the thought of anything that makes you scared. Because when, we, when we're scared, we imagine it and then that creates our emotion. So what yeah. we see, we feel. So what we do is push that thought in front pause it, drain the colour, put it in a frame, and then move it further and further away. Because emotions happen instantaneously. You think of a job interview and you get nervous. What we're doing is taking logical control. You're not letting your emotion control you. You're controlling your emotions. So get that thought, push it further and further away, and you'll feel less and less anxious, less and less scared. Wow, this is great. 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 Let's talk about, let's talk about your book. So what's the title of your book? How how long has it been on the market? Is it on the market? How long has it been there? Let's talk about yeah. all of it. What inspired so, it, actually? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's called What is Your Interview Identity? And it's on pre-release at the moment on all the bookstores, so like Amazon everywhere else. And it's officially launched on the 1st of September, so you can pre-order it now. And like I said, the whole book is based on all this research that I've been reading during the COVID period. And it's kind of split into two parts. So the first part talks about like the unconscious bias that we mentioned. It also talks as well, like if the interviewer don't like you for any reason. So say you're applying for a masculine job and you're female and the interviewer doesn't like that, or you're old and the interviewer wants to employ someone young or whatever reason. You know, if someone's like ageist or racist or sexist or something, it's very hard to turn those people around. But a lot of people have unconscious bias. They get a thought process, but they don't re they're not really that aware of it. And when they become aware of it, you know, they kind of want to change it. But if an interviewer doesn't like you in the interview, they'll subtly change their behavior at the subconscious level. That makes you, the applicant, change your behavior. So it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. The interview goes, oh, I, didn't, I don't think you're right for this job. And now you're acting a way where I know you're not right for that job. So I, so I was right. So it's a, it's a very clever mm. thing that happens at the subconscious level. But if they like you, they encourage a positive behavior from you. So you act even better. And then they search for evidence where they go, I knew that person was suitable for the position. So there's quite a lot of stuff going on at the subconscious level that I break down and explain and teach techniques how, how you can overcome it. But the main part of the book is looking at your interview identity. So how employers perceive you in the job interview. As an example, in the workplace, you might be highly skilled, highly competent, highly confident. But if you get to the job interview and you can't confidently communicate your competencies during that 45-minute process, the employer is not going to think you're the right fit for that organization. So it explains your 16 interview identities, what, how you act in the job interview, what your strengths are, what your areas of development are, and, and advice to um, improve that particular job interview performance. 
And then it's got loads of tip, tips in there, like different interview formulas, like we talked about with the first initial question. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. There's loads of formulas in there, loads of advice to improve your confidence, and um, a bit like the visualization technique. And um, it describes what makes high scoring answers. So, like long descriptive answers are often high scoring, hitting the job criteria, and using mixed language, having emotion in your voice is a very powerful way to get people on your side. There's all this whole thing about likability factor makes people want you to be suitable for the position. And then expressing your level of knowledge and experience shows that you have the skills and the qualities required for that job role. So yeah, it's about really, the bottom line is it's about getting career professionals to be successful in job interviews. Wait, there was one question they asked me um, when I went to my interview, when I just come out of the university and then they asked me, so if you are employed, at what age, at what time are you looking at getting married because we know that when the women get married they quickly want to go off and have children and, and they are looking at that and so no they asked me so will you get married <laughs> and I said of course I'll, I'll get married because I'm a woman I'd like to start my family is answering it that way wrong so in, in England you're not allowed to ask um, employers are not allowed to ask those questions, questions. Um, yeah they're not allowed to ask you about your marriage they're not really allowed to delve into your age because uh, they, know, they know about stereotypes and like people make prejudiced opinions. And what they're doing, especially in the UK and a lot of Europe, is trying to make it a very fair um, interview process. So HR staff going on unconscious bias training now to become aware of how this subconscious stuff uh, affects. So was that an English interview or was that in a different country? No, that was in Ghana. This interview in was Ghana. in Ghana. Yeah, yeah. So if, so if you are asked any negative question, so in England you shouldn't be asked that, but just say you was asked that and... You know, if you get asked these random questions that are quite personal, you might not even want to work for that employer. But just say you're asked a question and, you know, you, you really want to work there. What you need to do is reframe how they see you, because what's happened is they've got an opinion about people. It's a stereotype. It's a prejudice, but it's, it's an opinion. Uh, and what you need to do is reframe that. So they've got a completely different opinion about you. This actually happened to me once. So um, my name's Chris and. It's often classed as a male name, but people see it as a female name as well. And okay. because I work in the helping sector, it's more it's more more females working that job role uh, than I do. So I remember one of my first jobs uh, going for the position, and uh, I, I was waiting in the interview. I was quite nervous waiting for the interviews to come down. This woman came down to interview me. She went, "Oh, oh, I thought you was going to be female." And, and she had this like look of surprise on yeah, there and I thought yeah. oh right and I knew about unconscious but I thought oh and I need to reframe this right away so the first thing I said like at the top of my head I said do you know what a lot of people when applying for jobs sometimes think and feel it's, it's because I've got feminine traits so I've got lots of empathy I'm a really good listener I've got great communication skills all kind of like you know qualities that you need for this job role uh, and you could see you go oh yeah so what I did I turned because she thought I, I you know I might have been female which means she wanted to recruit fe yeah. feminine uh, personnel so i said i had the skills and qualities that she presumed was good for that job role great 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 chris has there been any regrets in your life growing up up to now has there been anything you've regretted in your life yeah so the first one is not getting on this podcast earlier because it's been great fun so far <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know, I was I was chatting to someone recently about this because um, I've made loads of mistakes and you know being dyslexic and stuff, and I ended up working like the jobs I didn't like for a long time. I couldn't really break away from that. But I always think, you know, all these mistakes we make and all these negative experiences we have, you can't change them, can you? Because 
All, all, everything that you've done so far in your life has made you the person you are today. And I don't think I'd be so motivated to write books and to help people if it didn't go through all my negative periods in my life. It's the butterfly wing effect, isn't it? You know, you can't change the butterfly wings because it exactly. affects things across the world. So, you know, I'm, I do reflect a lot and think, you know, I'm not happy at the moment with this part of my life, so I'm going to do something different. Or, you know, I'm, I'm getting stagnant, so I need a new challenge or a new goal. But generally speaking, you know, at the time I would have wanted to change stuff because I was very poor for a while. Like I said, I was eating beans and toast for a tea every night. Um, so I was very poor for a while. But I think everything has led me up to this point where I'm confident, I'm happy, I'm achieving my life. I take risks, I, I set goals and, you know, I fail on some of them and achieve other ones. You know, and that's what... When, I, when I'm on my deathbed, when I'm 99 on my deathbed, looking back on my life, what I'm going to be thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm not going to think, was I rich? Was I poor? Uh, did I do this job? Or did I go to that, uh, you know, school or whatever? I'm going to look back and think, was I happy? Was my, ha- was my life full of happiness and love? And they're the two important things, happiness and love. In your opinion, do you think if you were a rich child, you'll be able to achieve the things you, you have achieved now? Well, that's a great, do you know, I don't think I would have done actually because I think because I was dyslexic and I, I really did think I had, I was this dyslexic loser and my life was going to be like, you know, you know, terrible in terms of like my career and finance and stuff. And I remember um, thinking, what, ha- what have I got instead of being academic? And I always thought it was my yeah. work ethic. So, you know, I always arrived early to work. I always put like 110% into everything I did. You know, I was like moving boxes around warehouses and doing that sort of stuff. But I did it quicker than anyone else. You know, I was always on it. Anytime there was overtime, I put my hand up to do it. Any more responsibility, I, I took it on. I, my first job was actually when I was 14. I did part-time work while I was at school as well. So I always felt my work ethic came out of not being academic. And my family was quite poor as well. We, you know, we was on a council estate. My mum and dad didn't have a lot of money. Used to get hand-me-down shoes and hand-me-down clothes. You know, my family, I got five siblings. Um, so I actually think that early life of being kind of poor made me have strong work ethic to have this goal of like being successful. So I do think it would have changed my life a lot, actually. And I don't know how it would have changed, but it, but it would have been a different life. Great, great, great. I believe that sometimes um, our experiences or the hardships, should I say hardships, our experiences actually do shape us for the better. For me, that's what I think. Because if you have everything handed up to you, you know, one, you don't know how to manage it because when you need it, it's there. So you don't know what is called management. You get it. You just spend anyhow, you waste anyhow. But when you've had to go through the toils of life, should I say that? Mm. Then you are yeah. able to value something when you have it. Um, yeah. So we, that is my message here on podcast, that whatever we are going to shouldn't break us. It should rather make us because yeah. it's for the best, depending on how we look at it. As you were talking, you said you started writing your book when COVID came, if I got you right. Yeah. So COVID, in looking at it, COVID has not actually been a bad thing. Because yeah. it made most of us realize a part, a part of us that we didn't even know existed. You know, some of our dreams were revived. Some of us are doing great things that we wouldn't have done on a normal day because we were on the go, on the go, and thought we never had time. But mm. COVID gave us more time to reflect on ourselves, see within ourselves what we have that can bring out to help others. And most of us are diversifying, you know, and mm. adding on to the things you're already doing. So COVID, in its sense, even though killed a lot of people and still, you know, but it's not been that bad. 
Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, I found it dead interesting where, especially, especially at the first lockdown, there's like loads of news articles came out saying like, oh, people, people are like spending more time with a family, doing it up their <laughs> grandparents and brothers and sisters and that sort of stuff. Um, people was doing more exercise because you weren't allowed to get out apart from to exercise. Because I'm a runner, I, I do a lot of running. Okay. So I, where, where I run, there's like normally like five, five or six people. When when the lockdown came, there's like 80 people running. So people started ch- reflecting and changing their lifestyles. I always find it's a shame that you have to go through like a big event like COVID or someone dying or you know having a heart attack yeah. for people to reflect and go yeah. right. What changes do we need to make in my life? Do that all the time. If you're dead happy and fulfilled, still stop and go right. What's happening in my life? I'm a happy. I'm in the right direction. Is there anything I need to change? Always reflect uh, and make changes throughout your lifestyle. Don't wait for a big negative event to happen. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us uh, before we quickly wrap up? Yeah, so just because we're talking about like kind of motivation, the two things that motivate people is pain and pleasure. You have a motivated by pleasure. So you kind of want the big goal, you want the whatever the dream house, the money or to be happy or successful, whatever it is. So sometimes you're drawn by the pleasure and that's like your, your cavert, you know, you want the cavert. But other people are motivated by pain, aren't they? So you're motivated by, so I was poor, I never want to be poor again. So I'm always motivated to like get away from that potential thing all the successful people by the way have been homeless has been gone bankrupt haven't they and they've gone through this negative thing uh, which makes them be successful because they never want to be there again but what you find is a lot of people sit in the middle of that pain and pleasure they just got enough to get by they just got enough happiness they got you know the job's okay or whatever but what you sometimes need to do is push yourself to that pain or to that pleasure uh, point because that motivates you to take action. When you're sat in the middle, you're kind of just too comfortable. So if you want to take action, think about what motivates you, pain or pleasure, and then use that. Use the carrot or use the stick to get motivated. Great. Great. I believe that will be your last um, words to our listeners. Will it? Or you have something else to say as your final words to our listeners and then we bring this to a close. Yeah, so just uh, because we're talking about job interviews as well. So my advice to anyone who, who's going to job interviews is uh, one, follow those three rules of a successful job interview. But really just go there and go there with a the mindset of, with, do I want to work for this organization? It's not about the employer wanting to hire you. It's about you wanting to work for that employer. When you have that mindset, you're confident, you talk more, and you're more charismatic. Oh, that's great. That's great. I like that. I like that. I like that. Where can our listeners connect with you, Chris? Yep. So if you want my book, uh, What Is Your Interview Identity? It's on Amazon. My website is employmentking.co.uk and I'm always on LinkedIn. So you can send me messages and questions on LinkedIn. Great. We would like to say a massive thank you, Chris, for coming on podcast with Sheila today. It's been really fun. It's been really nice meeting you. You've got a great energy, Sheila. So it's been fun. I enjoyed it. I did. Great. If you've been listening in, this is season two, episode 18 of our podcast series, where we've been bringing your way seasoned guests with inspiring real life stories to share with us. Do not miss out on all these lovely experiences. Subscribe and be notified when a new episode is released. We have a video presentation of this episode on our YouTube channel. Just search for podcast machine on YouTube and you'll find us. Until we meet again in a fortnight, have a brilliant week.